Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. But talk can be enlightening. It's very rarely frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Welcome to the Nerdist Writers Panel Series, an informal chat about writing and the business and process of writing. Each and every panel benefits 826LA, the national nonprofit tutoring program. For more information on 826LA, visit 826LA.org. I'm your moderator, Ben Blacker. Follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker. I'm the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour stage program and the style of old-time radio, available as a podcast on iTunes and via Nerdist.com. Uh, I've written for the series Super Ninjas and Supernatural. Uh, all right. Our first panelist has early credits on the comedies all about the Andersons and Blue Collar TV. He then made the leap to hour-long television with The Cleaner and Cold Case. He's been on Supernatural for two seasons where he is currently the co-executive producer. Please welcome Adam Glass. And he's an all right guy for a Yankees fan. <laughs> hmm. Our next panelist's credit include uh, the reality series, Pros vs. Joes. He also wrote on No Ordinary Family for its sole season as currently on the J.J. Abrams series Alcatraz, Lee Dana Jackson. Hi. All right. And our final panelist was with CSI for its first six seasons, and in that time created the Fox series Killer Instinct. He's worked on Vanished and Bones and is the creator of Lifetime's Drop Dead Diva, recently renewed for a fourth season. Please welcome Josh Berman. <laughs> welcome. Hi. I want to jump right in, and we usually start with breaking in stuff, but... Um, I kind of want to get to the, the pressing questions that I have. Uh, and Josh, I want to start with you and talk a little bit about Drop Dead Diva. Because you've come from this sort of procedural background. And Diva has procedural elements, certainly. But tell us about uh, where that show came from and about pitching that show. Because it was originally developed for not Lifetime, right? Right. It was, I was originally developed uh, through 20th for Fox. And it's one of the weird shows that ended up being produced by Sony for Lifetime. So uh, it's almost, <laughs> uh, I can't think of another time where a, a script switched studios. But I, that all was because of the writer strike. So mm-hmm. bringing you back to five years ago, um, I had been at CSI for six years, and I wrote a, a two pilots there, uh, Killer Instinct and Vanish, that both ended up at Fox. So uh, 20th made me a deal to go over there, and uh, I worked, as, as you guys probably know, when you're in an overall deal, they like to lay you off on shows. I actually like the show Bones quite a bit, so I was happy to go. I was supposed to be there for six weeks. It ended up being four years, but it was a great four years. I loved it there. I don't know if... Hart Hansen, I think, Hart came. was here last yeah, week. He so, had many nice things to say Yeah, he's you. become one of my best friends, so that was a great experience, but so while I'm at Bones, and I, you know, I created uh, with Killer Instinct and Vanished and CSI, they're all kind of these testosterone-driven <laughs> shows, and I go in for my meeting, and it's a lot of the bigwigs are there, and I say I want to develop a show about a skinny wannabe model who dies and comes back to life as an overweight attorney. <laughs> and uh, they looked at me like I was crazy, and one of the executives turned to me and said, um, wait a second, you're our, 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 our dark testosterone guy. That was actually his words. And I said, yeah, but I really want to do this show. It, it's, it was inspired by the fact that... Um, 
I wanted to do, I wanted to build a show around a character instead of a procedure, which I had been doing for so long. And the, in my life, the person who was most influential on me was my grandmother, who was a four foot 11 chubby Jewish Holocaust survivor, but who carried herself like a supermodel. And because literally she had nothing to lose in life. Um, so I thought, okay, this is what I want to do. And, and 20 was not happy, but they said, oh, I, I had two backup ideas, both of which were more procedural, mm-hmm. but they said, they allow me to try and set this up first. And if it doesn't sell, they wanted to fall back. So that's a position where you get really pegged as one kind of writer. And if I didn't have the leverage of an overall deal, I may not have had the guts to go in and say, okay, I know you know me as one kind of person, but I'm going to do something else. I'm curious about, you know, you went in with this idea, which is such a high concept idea, but it's also really gettable. But what did that pitch sound like? You know, how much information did you go in with? What had you broken already either in your head or, you know, on paper to hand over to them? Do you remember? Um, yeah, I definitely, I, I would always advise not to hand over anything because you don't know where that's going to go. And and most, most uh, executives won't ask you for for a handout. Uh, uh, for studio executives might, and I never have a problem sharing it with them if, if they own the material already, uh, but, but not network executives. Um, yeah, I went in with a fairly fleshed out concept. Uh, I didn't reference my Jewish grandmother in the pitch. <laughs> I just said, uh, what I spoke to more there is because I was, I knew that it would most likely be a woman to buy the pitch. What I talked about was the fact that it's so obvious to me that so often the women in the room that are are the most attractive get the most attention and it's not and what does it feel like to be the one to be the smartest person in the room but to not get anyone to listen to you so that was a theme that i felt would be more relatable to the executives that i was pitching to and that's what and that's what did allow me to sell it Mm -hmm. and then i only later told the story about my grandmother because i didn't think as soon as a network hears jewish grandmother holocaust survivor they're not going to start bidding for a script so um that's how that came that's interesting and then was there a question once you were sort of up and running about what is, how does the show function, what is the mechanism of it, what does it look like week to week? Yeah, I mean, I, I was a huge fan of Ally McBeal, mm-hmm. and I'd never written in that genre, even though I'm a lawyer, and I wanted to kind of capture that spirit in Drop Dead Diva. So I knew it would be a legal franchise, and I also wanted to showcase this woman's brains. And the con- conceit is when she was a model, she, was, um, she never did anything good, she never did anything bad because she was never challenged. And now with her soul in a plus-sized body, she is forced to become a better person. So that, that's kind of her journey and the context of uh, uh, a client a week. Interesting. That's, that's a great pitch. Thank it you very to much. Have worked. <laughs> um, Dana, we've had uh, a couple of people who are part of the J.J. Abrams machine here, but we haven't really gotten to dig deep on it, especially because you're you know, a, a mid-level writer, right? Uh, and you're on this new show, which has a lot of buzz behind it. What is it like being in the midst of one of these shows, again, with great expectations, uh, and especially coming from the background that you've come from? Um, uh, expectations are challenging. Um, <laughs> I, th- I think, honestly. Um, JJ's great. He, we, we spent the week in the room with him this week, actually, mm-hmm. which was rare, uh, while he was prepping Star Trek. Um, but... I don't know. I think being on a show that has um, having JJ usher our show to, to the screen has been really awesome because, um, you know, right now we're on this, this production hiatus. I don't know if anybody reads Deadline. I assume a couple of people <laughs> might. We're on a production hiatus right now mm-hmm. um, because, yeah, as of a week ago, and we're rejiggering a whole bunch of the early episodes since we're not airing until January. Um, 
not that anything was bad. They were great, and the network is has been thrilled about it, or else we wouldn't have premiered at Comic-Con and all the other stuff that we've done. But having a guy who's got a feature background, you know, in a feature, you shoot it, you cut it, you watch it, and then you say, you know, we're going to go pick that up, that up, and that up. We did that with the first couple of episodes, and JJ said, you know what, let's go pick that up, that up, and that up. And so that's what we're doing right now. Um, and having somebody who has the ability to make Very that rare. happen, it's incredible. Um, so we've literally gone back to the pilot and we're, you know, just tweaking little, little things here and there, you know, adding tonal elements, things that we discovered in episode six. Oh my gosh, you know, it would be great if we do this to this character. Well, now we have the, uh, the ability to lay that back and make it seem like we were smarter than we were. <laughs> um, which is a luxury. So, yeah. so thus far, uh, the JJ machine has been awesome. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. How how is this experience compared to uh, past rooms you've been in? How big is the room on Alcatraz? Uh, we have we have uh, eight writers, um, okay. one of uh, one writing pair, mm-hmm. which is about which is smaller than um, last season, but uh, it still feels like a lot of people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot. My background is in features, so oh, okay. a room is much is a lot more than me. which is what I was used to for many, many years sitting in front of a computer by myself where you're just like, who do I bounce this off of? Oh, honey, can I pitch something to you? Um, And and people with all sorts of backgrounds, some heavily genre writers, some uh, sort of more character-based stuff and a little bit of procedural mixed in. Uh, What's your your comfort zone as a writer? I I would say that room right next to us is, (laughs) is, is absolutely my milieu. I'm a total... I'm the comic book geek, the <laughs> like the genre junkie. Uh, when you know when they need a character to throw out some cool comic book reference or some rather obscure comic book <laughs> reference, that's that would be me. Um, and and that's in fact how I got started. I was I, I wrote a spec that was like the the superhero version that I of a show that I could write but couldn't get the rights to, uh, and that got me. You know that was what got me working. Was just. And people were like, oh, this is the comic book guy. And I lived in that box, which was a box I was happy with. And this is probably the farthest thing from uh, pure genre Mm -hmm. that I've done. But it's still sort of heavily genre, which is great. Oh, interesting. And we'll talk about that spec in a minute. Um, So I think that's an interesting thing to have have, uh, come up with. Uh, Adam, uh, you have written for the screen, for the small screen, uh, comic books, uh, and as well as comedy and drama and procedural and genre stuff. Um, can you talk a little bit about the differences in these kinds of writing or is writing writing? Yeah. I mean, everybody I think has their own opinion about that, but this is just my opinion on it. I just think that as writers, especially as you continue to move along your career, if you want to keep working, you better be able to do a lot of things well, you know, and yes, you have to be expertise in certain things. You don't want to be jack of trades and master of none, but I found in my experience that, and I, you know, maybe I'm just been lucky, um, that you, you know, I started in comedy, but I knew there was a drama side to me. It's funny, you know, you're talking about this, uh, and I just was thinking about it while you're saying it. One spec can change your life. You know, that's the great thing, I mean, about what we do. You could write one thing, and it could change your life, and no one can stop you from writing it. You know, like anything else, you want to be an actor, well, someone's got to put you in something. You want to be a director, you need money to do this. You have the power to write something that could change your life. And I think every one of us, even when we were doing it, we might not have known it at the time, we all had that spec that changed our life or that writing sample that changed our life. And maybe it didn't do the things we wanted it to do for us. Like, you know, it didn't sell for a million dollars, but then you look back and that's the spec that got you three jobs. Mm -hmm. 
you know, so we've all had that experience. So yeah, I mean, for me, I just had a lot of different interests and I liked a lot of different things and I've been lucky enough to, um, be able to write all of them. Every one of them has their own challenges is, you know, I always say this, nothing's tougher than a comedy room, you know, but, but the funniest room you'll ever be in is a drama room because <laughs> you're not being paid to be funny. You're just being funny because you're trying to, you know, break it up. So I think that it's, you know, every room has its challenges. I personally, um, like if you were to say to me, like, I'd much rather be in a drama room than a sitcom room. Cause it's, you know, it's, it's tough to be on and be funny all the time. <laughs> That's really tough. And, uh, for me, that was tough that, I mean, I enjoyed it and I did it a couple for a couple of years, but I found that I enjoyed being in a drama room and talking more about story and characters and arcing things out and just the bounce back. And like, you know, Dane, I started in features. So I remember the first time I was in a, you know, developing even in writing and somebody said, what do you think, Adam? And I said, me, what do I think? <laughs> Cause I was a feature guy. I was so used to like, you know, dumb writer, you don't know what you're talking about and everything like that. And then you're all of a sudden in TV and you're like, wow, people really want to hear what I think. And just to be in a room with so many great minds and great people, you know, it's funny. I go, when we travel with my family, um, my wife always says this to me. She says, you know, people always say to me, what do you do for a living? And I say, I'm an electrician, you know, because, <laughs> you know, and that's not just a trivia because it's like what I started to realize is how rare what we do is. You know, I mean, it really is such a small thing. I can't tell you how many times I've brought up that I'm a writer to people. And they go, no, what do you really do? And I'm like, no, I'm a writer. And they're like, you're like, like, no, really, really. And you realize we're really blessed. We've been really lucky. Uh, some of it's hard work. But at the end of the day, you to be in a room with a group of people, you find that you all came from all different walks of life. But you all have these similar things that drove you to come here. And you sit around and you get to talk about ideas all day and they pay you. That's amazing. You know? what, why do you think we get that disbelief? Because uh, I think in the, in, for most people in the world, we get outside of L.A., we get out of anything, you know, it's, it's a very small percentage of people who make a living as a writer. Mm -hmm. And yet there's so many different kinds of writers, obviously. Mm -hmm. Here we're talking about TV writing, but, you know, there's magazine writers. There's, sure. you know, all types of writers, copy ad writers, everything. But, yeah, I just think it's a rare thing. Mm -hmm. So um, we may as well start with you while, while we're on a roll here. What uh, what was that spec that you did that changed things for you? So this is actually a really funny story. I um, so I was a comedy guy and I did a show. I created a show. I got into uh, TV because I created a show called All About the Andersons for Anthony Anderson. It was a sitcom. It was on the WB. And this was after doing features for a bit? Features for being a dialogue punch-up guy for years, working on Bad Boys and, you know, tons of other movies. I was the young, hip, urban dude, you know? <laughs> so it was like, you know, I got to sit with Sam Jackson and, and, you know, put words in his mouth, you know, which you don't put words in Sam Jackson's mouth. He says whatever he wants. Um, but... Um, as I started to have a family, I needed, like, a, I couldn't go flying and living on sets. I couldn't, like, all the things that, you know, and I also, because you can get sort of pigeon-held into something, and I got held into being one of these dialogue punch-up guys. So I was making a lot of money, but my name wasn't on anything. I go to a movie, people laugh at a line, I was like, ugh, I wrote that. <laughs> you know, stand up in the movie, me, that was my joke, <laughs> you know. Um, so I was like, and I also needed a steadier way to make a living. So I knew I wanted to get into feature, uh, TV more and stuff like that. Something I always loved. So long and short of it is, I got really lucky. The first thing I wrote as a comedy pilot 
went and became a TV show called All About the Andersons. And I was thrown into Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Yeah. So you wrote it for Anthony Anderson. Yes, who's a friend of mine. Okay, so the two of you got together and he yeah. said, I want to do a show that's based on what I called him I said, you should do a TV show. Okay. <laughs> He's like, all right, let's do a TV show. Uh, so was it born out of, you know, you guys chatting or did he We were friends concept? for a long time okay. and I just knew him really well mm-hmm. and I sort of knew who he was and what would work for him. And yeah, I mean, we had talked about things. He's a really smart guy and uh, we just had come up together and been friends for a long time. And we turned around, and this is not even the spec script story. That's why I'm trying to get to it. <laughs> Shoot through. Listen, we have all day. It was on, it was on for 19 episodes. <laughs> um, the long and short of it was, yeah, it was a great, it was a great learning experience. I got thrown into the into it, but when I walked out of it, and my show was canceled, and for many different reasons, um, canceled. By the way, we were getting a three one on a Friday night at nine thirty. <laughs> wow, which like now would be like a giant hit on TV. Um, so we turned around, and I then went and did a show called Blue Collar TV, which uh, was the worst job I ever had in my life. <laughs> I told my wife, this might actually start me drinking. Um, you, you went to staff on that show? Staff on that show. They called me up, and I went to do that show. And I was like, I literally was driving home one day, and I'm like, I have to change my life. <laughs> like, if I have to do these shows the rest of my life, I will not make it. And I, my son was just born, and you know, we just bought a house. So what I did was I told my wife... She, she'd go to Portland, go spend some spend a couple of weeks with your mom and up there. And they went up there, and I had this idea for a show. And I literally just sat there for ten days and grew a beard and like just 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 wrote wrote wrote. So I write this thing, I give it to my agent, who's Nancy Josephson at the time at ICM. She's the head of uh, television there, and she calls me on a Sunday, which she never did. And she's like, "This script's gonna change your life." And I'm like, "I'm like, oh." Thank God. She's like, I had no idea, you know, one hour drama. Everyone sees you as a black comedy guy, basically urban comedy about? guy. Yeah. Well, I, I'm going to get to it because it's funny how things end up working oh, out. You've so, told the story before. I have never told this to oh. you before. So the long, and, <laughs> the long and short of it is this. So I write it. She says, I have an 800 pound gorilla who, if he wants to turn around and get into this, like it's going to change your life. I'm like, great. I, I get a call like that Tuesday from the 800 pound gorilla producer partner. He says, Hey mate, we love it. This is awesome. You know, we're gonna make this. You know, everything like that. He might even direct it. Like you know, he he loved it. Can you meet with him on Thursday, Wednesday? My agency's going crazy. All these meetings, everything like this. I mean, literally from Sunday to Wednesday, my life just gets turned upside down by this spec. It's like everything you dreamed of as a writer. Like this is what you've wanted all your life. That Thursday morning. I wake up, my 800-pound gorilla got arrested for drunk driving and anti-Semitic remarks. <laughs> I'm like, oh, really? 25-year career and you pick the, the day I'm going to meet you to go off the res. I'm telling my wife, I'm Jewish, I don't care. I just want him to make this thing. Um, so... Uh, but that spec, basically, I wrote, a, a, and it was a year. So then, so here's the other side of this story, and this is to show you how specs go. So then, uh, that good news, uh, AMC wants to buy your spec. Awesome. So they buy my spec, and, and I sell it, and I have my first big meeting there, and this is great, and they're really interested in doing it, and then I'll tell you what it's about because you'll get it in a minute. And he says to me, um, uh, they say to me, hey, so we, you know, in your spec, my spec was about a guy who's running a, a business a uh, nefarious business who finds out that he's dying. It's basically King Lear. And who am I going to leave my kingdom to? Who do I trust? All this, all set in the world of a motorcycle gang. And it was, <laughs> it was called the Disciples. And 
So and they AMC bought it. AMC bought it. But then is what they say to me. They go, "Hey, we just bought this other show about a guy who die who finds out he's dying and he starts making crystal meth in his thing. So we want to change your guy dying." And I'm like, I, I mean, I walked out of the meeting and I just knew I was like, "Oh, this this thing's done." That spec has gotten me. So it didn't do anything I wanted to do. Didn't do you know? It became a disaster at AMC. And then of course, there's a great motorcycle show that's on TV now on FX, Kurt Sutter's show. And I was a year too early and a dime too late and, and Mel Gibson getting loaded and uh, getting crazy. And, uh, but that spec has gotten me every single job um, I've had since then. In fact, I'd probably have to write a new one. But, um, <laughs> but it is literally every single job I've gotten since then. The showrunner who said to me, it got me on The Cleaner, which started me in drama. I was on that for two seasons. Then it got me on Cold Case and then from Cold Case to Supernatural. And everyone says the same thing. They read that spec and that's the spec that basically wow. changed my life. And affords private school for these two guys. Right now. <laughs> uh, Dana, tell one minute. Tell us about. <laughs> We're just talking about the fact that we share a show. We have shared a showrunner. Well, we'll we should talk about that person. <laughs> Get that person on the panel. Um, tell us about this spec that you wrote. In fact, let's start back even further. What is your background as a writer and as a human? Where did you come as from? I know the, both of these guys a little bit, but we don't know each other at uh, all. No, not at all. Um, my background as a writer is actually as a director. Um, mm. I, I, I sort of stumbled backwards into writing. Um, I'll give you the short version of the long version of the short version. What do um, you like? <laughs> I was I was working as a uh, I was working as an analyst at Standard and Poor's uh, in New York, <laughs> wow. and wanting to get into film, uh, I was walking across Astor Place one night, like mid literally it was like midnight. You know that cube in the middle of Astor Place. I was walking past the cube and I was just de- depressed, and I ran into Spike Lee, and he was like, you know, I started talking to him. And he's like, so so what do you what do you want to do? And I was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm an analyst and I want to get into film. He's like come by my office on Monday. I was like, I, I can't come by your office on Monday. I have a job. He's like, come by my office on Tuesday. So on Monday, I went to Standard and Poor's and quit. And on Tuesday, I went to his office and he made me an intern. Uh, I worked as an intern for three months and he made me his development executive. So I worked for him, developed, uh, developed uh, like four movies that he did and then went to, gra- went to graduate school at NYU. That's wild. It, it, it was totally <laughs> random. Um, came out of school as a, I, as a director because I had directed some shorts that got a lot of buzz and won a bunch of awards. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was working in New York as, as a director. I had sort of indie feature trajectory mm-hmm. all set in place. And then my wife got pregnant, told me that our apartment did not have space for another heartbeat. So we needed to move from that apartment and we could either go to outer Brooklyn or Los Angeles. So <laughs> it seemed like a, not much of a choice. Um, and so when I got here, I still had sort of directing things uh, happening. I was still working, but uh, in a much bigger pool and at a much lower level. So my agent told me to write something. And I wrote, he, he was like, write the movie that you, write your dream movie. So I basically wrote um, my dream superhero movie, which is like if I could ever direct something for $300 million, it would be that. Uh, what was it? Can you tell us a little bit about it? It, it was, it, uh, um, I don't even know if I remember it. It was, uh, it was about a guy who wakes up. It was the born identity with, the, with superpowers, basically. It was like a guy who wakes up and discovers that he has superpowers and a whole bunch of other people already know it and are after him trying to get him for his superpowers. And he's got to figure out who he is and why he has these powers and why he doesn't remember any of it. And so it literally was the born identity with superpowers. And literally it would have cost 
six or seven hundred million dollars because <laughs> yeah. it was the biggest craziest thing ever but you knew you were only writing it as a sample right? it was i was just writing it because he said write something awesome and i said i will do what you say because you know this business better than i do <laughs> um and he it went out on like a friday or you know for the weekend read and saturday he started calling i started getting calls like every couple of hours and he's like so and so is saying this number and the number is a number that was astronomical to me and i was like i can't believe that and and then an hour later, so-and-so is saying this number. And like, so for the next 48 hours, people were saying these numbers and they were getting bigger and bigger. And I'd never heard numbers that large. And then the phone didn't ring for like four hours. And then he called back and he's like, so such and such dropped out and such and such dropped out. And it literally like in 48 hours, it went from me never having to work again to not selling anything. And I was like, oh, so we're back at zero. But as I was listening to your story, I was like, that's exactly, yeah. uh, that spec got me developing features with everyone who I had, could have ever dreamed of working with. So I did that for a couple of years at every studio. Um, your own stuff as well as property. My own stuff as well pitching. as assignment stuff. Gotcha. Um, and I was sort of the step below where you were, where not only was my name not on the screen, but things weren't going into production, which is the most frustrating yeah. thing if you're in this business because you get in this business to create and we're creating things that were then not happening. And some of them may still, but at that moment I was like, well, I guess I need to write something that will get made. So I wrote a spec pilot. Um, and it, it went out really, I didn't know anything about television and I went to NYU for film school, but NYU has a sort of not bad, but they're, they're, they're not very interested in television out yeah. there. I think it's better now than it was like five or especially 10 yeah, years ago. Yeah, probably is. what I hear. Um, I'm, I'm sure it's better because <laughs> I know a lot of people out here who are from NYU, but then when I was there back in the aughts, um, they didn't teach much about TV. So I didn't know anything about it. So I just, I wrote this pilot. Um, Did you know how to write a television pilot? I read your pilot actually. Which, which one? Dropped Oh wow! Which, oh no, kidding. No, I, I would, I would get like the, you know, the, the disc. This is back when discs happened. You're such a kiss up. Ago. You're just trying to get a job. No, no, I really, <laughs> I have a whole thing about that pilot because I, I remember reading. I, I was like, dropped a diva. I'm not gonna read a about a diva. And then I, I like read the first page and I was like, oh, I'll read the second page. And just, I loved it. So um, that's amazing. Thank you. But no, I, I uh, me too. I read you. <laughs> <laughs> I love you both. But <laughs> And that's the goal of any pilot, right? Is get past the yeah, first page exactly. and get to the second page. So back then they would send out all the pilots on disc, like the pilots that were going to get produced mm -hmm. that season. So I'd get the disc and just read everything. I'd, and I just read them and I was like, okay, that seems like, okay, if you do this and that. So I wrote a pilot and it went out really late in the season because I didn't finish it until like almost June because I didn't know that it was supposed to be done months <laughs> earlier. And my agent got me one meeting off it. And that meeting was with the showrunner for Norine Family, and I met him on a Wednesday, and I started working two days later. Wow. So it was crazy. like total kismet, and many people are like, dude, you never paid any dues, but they don't know about the whole right. period when I was... Well, that's often the case. Yeah, yeah I course. mean, they look at your first credit, which was a year ago, yeah. and it exactly. doesn't like, translate to all the work you've put in. And sitting there going, oh, we're going to make this, right? Yeah, no. no. Yeah, everyone yeah. pays their own dues, because I hate that too. You know, there's that idea, especially when you come from features... And yeah, they're like, you know, oh, you didn't start as a PA, writer's PA. Now, look, by the way, I have nothing against that road, and I think it's a great road uh, to come up. But there's all different ways to get in. There's no one road, I think, you know, so. Let's hear about another road. My road is a little different. Yeah. Um, what, I, uh, you have I, a law degree. 
Yeah, I was uh, I was at law school and business school at Stanford at the time, knowing very well I didn't want to be a businessman or a lawyer. So um, what I decided, I had the typical Jewish parents where get your education first and then worry about everything else later. Uh, but what I did during that time was I wrote scripts. Um, and I, I wrote an, a movie of the week and I wrote some other stuff. But uh, you said the most influential spec that we wrote. So uh, I'll just fast forward. I ended up becoming an executive, uh, paying my dues. Uh, low-level executive at NBC, uh, and while I was there, I started writing comedy scripts in, at night. And uh, at, after being there three years, I one of those scripts uh, uh, landed me a job on, on a on a sitcom. Um, and but after that show was canceled after seven episodes, um, I decided I wanted to write drama. And like you said, I, the timing was bad because it was like April, and staffing is usually in May, and I didn't have any drama specs and you can't become a drama writer without a spec. (laughs) But as a lawyer, I thought I really, and I love the show, the practice at the time. And I had all my ideas because in law school, instead of paying attention, I would just try and turn the cases into really cool stories (laughs) uh, in my notebooks. So um, I had a bunch of storylines that I I thought would make a cool episode of the practice. And so I called CAA and I had two agents there at the time. And I said, I'm going to write a spec practice and I want to be able to go out for dramas. And they said, you know what, write anything other than the practice. There's too many spec scripts out there of the practice. We have too many clients that we need to service that have written spec practices to write something else. So I said, okay. And then a month later, I sent them my my spec practice. And um, it was actually, uh, and and it got out, it got out in the marketplace. And fortunately, um, it landed me a couple of meetings. And um, I went and and I had one meeting on a show called CSI. And uh, it had that no one knew what that show was yet, and no one was high on it, despite what anyone says. Uh, and yeah, we had Sarah Goldfinger here last week. Yeah, oh, filled Sarah us in. told the story, and no one thought that show was going to work, and uh, e- either did I. Uh, the show that um, I really wanted to work on was called The Street, which was canceled. Um, now, fortunately, I had two meetings that day, and one was The Street, and one was CSI. The agent at CAA gave me the wrong address for the meeting for the street. So I never actually made it to that meeting. And it was a second meeting, too. So it was likely that that would have changed my life. But that agent accidentally, that showrunner had two shows, and she gave me the address for the other show, which was across town. So I missed that, and they were not willing to reschedule it because they were pissed that I missed it. Which is kind of hard to say because the CA certainly didn't take responsibility. Yeah. Um, so I went to the other meeting, which I was then an hour late for because back then I didn't have GPS. <laughs> but fortunately, the showrunner was on her way back from New York, and she was even later, so her plane got delayed. So when I got there, they were already feeling bad that I had to wait so long, not realizing that I had literally just arrived. And uh, I was sweating buckets. It was like my last meeting of the season. I just I wanted to get on the show, and uh, they, the good thing was it turned out that my spec practice was structurally written exactly like what would become CSI. So she loved the fact that I actually wrote a, the practice as a mystery. So that w- appealed to them, and uh, I got that job. And then literally 12 years later, my B story in the episode of the practice became a B story in an episode of Drop Dead Diva. So that saved me a week of work. (laughs) Yeah, always recycle. Always recycle. (laughs) 
Um, I, I'm curious if we can just go back a little further with you. Sure. Um, you know, you were getting this intense education, obviously, um, but writing must have always been a part of your life if you were turning these stories, even in your head, into great, uh, you know, these cases into great stories. Um, did you see yourself ending up in entertainment? What was, was I, there a plan or uh, a dream? Well, Adam talked about the notion of when you tell someone you're a writer, they look at you like, come on. So I think I had that notion too, where yeah. it would have been much easier to be a lawyer or, um, you know, to be a consultant or investment banker. And I, I, I was insecure at that point that could I really throw away my education and try and be a writer. So I did everything this safely. So <laughs> rather when I became an executive, I was an executive at NBC and I was learning the ropes. And I, I started as a summer intern making the coffee and doing the Xeroxing. And that summer I, I ended up, um, because I was in business school, I, I knew something called regression analysis. I couldn't <laughs> tell you how to do it now, but I did, I, I, created this computer program that could predict ratings and for movies of the weeks. And, and I got really lucky because like I predicted two in a row that came out exactly right. And it, I mean, it was, I could never ever do it again, but it was basically if you knew how much a movie made and uh, if, if, so if you knew a feature was a comedy, this was, sorry, this is if you took, you know, when networks air features. So if the movie was a Jim Carrey comedy that made $100 million, you could plug in comedy and $100 million, and it would give you a rating. And so I got lucky. So that got me the attention of the uh, network president, who thought that was really cool. And um, that made me an offer to come back as a low-level executive the following wow. year. But while studying for the bar exam, he hired somebody else for that job. So I literally got a call like four days before I was about to start saying, you're no longer going to be an executive in primetime series. You're going to be a movie of the week executive, so, which is not what I wanted to do at all. But it was just getting your foot in the door. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, those people, the people that I met my first year at NBC, I still know to this day. Mm -hmm. So, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, whether it's I, I don't have my Spike Lee story or the, or the drunk anti-Semitic story, but, um, but you never know who you're going to meet. Absolutely. Um, just very briefly, uh, when you were a development exec, was this sort of a crash course in script writing for you or were you fairly comfortable as a script writer at that point? Uh, it, it absolutely was a, a crash course. And what I, I got to read some fantastic writers and I was really soaking that in. And at the same time, and this is not a slam, I was reading writers that I thought, how in the world are you making the money you're making? Yeah. And I just thought that I saw, I saw both sides of it. I saw yeah. the incredibly lazy writer who <laughs> you'd get the script and it wasn't even spell checked and they're making a million dollars a year and wow. not taking notes. And then you would read something like one of my writers was Steve Cronish, who, who was the, uh, 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 he was the showrunner on the couple, the last two seasons of Profiler. Mm -hmm. And I used to love getting his scripts because they were so uh, well-written and, and so tight, and I actually used a lot of forensics, which is ironic for me. But So when you see that, that kind of inspires you to go, okay, I'm, not, I'm nowhere near that good, but I can see his craft, and I can begin to kind of use it in mind. Mm -hmm. That's interesting, and it's something we don't actually hit on very much, which is you know, great writing will really inspire more great absolutely. writing. Uh, absolutely. Uh, Dana, when you joined No Ordinary Family, yes, uh, Sort of the same question, you know, it must have been an incredible learning curve for you coming from writing features sure. by yourself. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, TV in general, working in TV is, is a to it's like a totally different 
business from working in features because in features your whole goal is to express the story and your voice and in tv your job is to essentially mimic someone else's voice um you know and yet have your own flavor to your yeah exactly like to 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 filter yourself through someone else's voice is probably a more accurate way of saying it um and just learning that again i didn't know anything about tv i didn't know how a room worked or anything so the first day in the room was the was like the first time I'd read anything about a room. I was just like, okay, we all sit around and, and we're going to just talk about this. <laughs> and and I remember uh, I remember Greg Berlanti coming in. He was uh, Greg was one of the executive producers on the show, and I remember him coming in the first or second day and starting to talk about stuff. And there were these big whiteboards, and there was nothing on them. And he was talking. And I was like, so should I put that on the board or something? Like, and he was like, no, 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 not yet. Relax, relax. And and I was just you know here's like this dude who's made a bazillion shows and a bunch of other people who've been on all these shows that I've watched and shows that were on when I was in high school and people have been working at this since I was a a kid. And I was just like, so, so wait, so, you know, cause I just didn't know any better. Um, but at the same time, I think at the end of the day, um, they like that energy. And, and I think the, the, Top the upper level people had have so many other things that they're worried about all the time that just having somebody who's sitting at the other under the table going you know what? we could do this this week we could do this this week you know what we could do this week we could do this this week like yeah. it's just it, the my, my friend refers to the room as the engine as the engine and you need somebody to be the coal of that engine um, and when I first got there I was just like okay I'm just going to be the coal and eventually that evolved into other things but. Um, you know, just sort of learning how those dynamics work, how to work with that many other people. And it really, it's not that difficult. It's just sitting around a table with mm-hmm. guys talking, but it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> well, there, I mean, there is something to it though. I mean, you kind of have to learn the room. You have to understand the room and how to input and when to sit back. No, definitely. There's, there are definitely dynamics, but I guess I guess what I mean is that those dynamics are the same dynamics that you would have at a dinner party. Mm-hmm. It's essentially having a, an all-day dinner party every single day. <laughs> but the food's not but as good. Without food, right? <laughs> On Drop no, no, Dead no, Diva, it's pretty good. I was going to say, we get a lot of food. Everybody comes to staff, you put on 20 pounds that first season. <laughs> Easy. Uh, uh, just to jump on yeah. something Dana was saying, too. Um, it's funny. Uh, do you know Don Rio? Don Rio's an old school guy. He's been around forever. Don created, what was that Joey Lawrence show? Uh, duh, Blossom. Blossom. <laughs> and uh, many other shows. And Don, Don's old school. He's been around forever. And he gave me this advice once. And he said, be a room rat. He's like, be a guy who runs boards. Be a guy who's going to be in the room a lot. Be that guy because you'll always work. And Don is 68 years old now, and I think he just became the writer. Not just. For the last couple of years, he's been running the room uh, on Two and a Half Men. And that's because, like he said, these old guys, nobody wants to be in the room. I love being in the room. So he works all the time. That guy's worked consistently his whole life because he loves being in the room. So just, you know, like you're saying, you need need people in the room. You need engines. You need people who can keep that room moving, and it's a really good skill set to have because – I'm sure as, as this gentleman will tell you, you know, everyone, a writing staff has a lot of different skill sets. Not everybody does everything great, you know, and if you're good at something, it helps. If you're good at a lot of things, even better. But some people are just great room people, can run boards. We were talking about our friend Eli, who that's like, when I think of Eli, I'm like, he's a room rat. He's a guy who can keep in the room. and I know he can keep the room moving. So different skill sets that you have as a writer and how that fits in TV sometimes. Can you talk to us specifically about some of the different rooms you've been in? Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, like we said at the top, comedy 
procedural and now this genre show. Well, and you know a little bit about this too. It's Supernatural. When I came to Supernatural, it was very different. Um, I had run a couple of rooms. So uh, they were like, hey, we're looking for a number two and would you be interested? And I had this comic book background because uh, I write a book called Suicide Squad and I, I've always written comics, but I like how do I say this? I was I was not necessarily a big genre guy. Like I wasn't a supernatural guy. Actually, I was sort of a guy like I like you know Batman and Daredevil. I like street level dudes. You know, I'm not the gal- galaxy guy. I'm not the guy Thor and stuff. Though I dig <laughs> Thor. Um, but at the end of the day, for all you Thor fans out there, you know, I don't want any problems. I Both like Thor. <laughs> Both Thor fans. Um, but at the end of the day, when they came, I, I watched the show then, and I was like, wow, this is like, I really actually ended up liking Supernatural. It had a procedural element to it, but it was really about brothers, and there was this overall myth arc. So for me, what I learned differently on this show that I had done before that, because everything else was procedurals and worlds and everything like that, was all of a sudden I learned about how do you do an overall myth arc? How do you do what we call the boy melodrama? How do you do, you know, all these like new things that sort of like I didn't know before I went into that show that now I can take from the show and bring somewhere else. Um, Did it come easily to you as a consumer of these things? Everything comes easy for me. No, I'm joking. Um, uh, no. I, I mean, forgot. I always forget. Yeah, no, it's, it, it was something to be learned. You know, it definitely took me a couple of scripts before I felt. And, you know, and I, and I think we all feel this way as writers. You, you could be on a show for five seasons and you know yet sometimes you, you autopilot and then other times you go you know oh wait maybe I thought I could write the show or you forget something and you go oh that's right you know like I, I knew that you know because you can get comfortable sometimes on a show but for me it takes usually two scripts to get in and then by usually the third script I have a good sense of what I'm doing but I, I those first two scripts are always a little you know rough for me I try to always get them in the ballpark for my showrunner um, but here's the other big difference about this so there's lots of different ways you run a room there's the you're in the room at 10 o'clock and you're there till whenever. I've been in those rooms. Um, comedy rooms are different because you go to the set a lot when you're doing a sitcom and you do a lot of tapings and then you after the tapings, if everybody knows how sitcoms work, so you do run-throughs. So basically, do a table read on Monday and then you get notes, you go back to the room, you rewrite the script. Tuesday, you put it up on its feet. Usually Tuesday or Wednesday, you put it up on its feet. And then you basically have uh, the studio come look at it. They give you notes. You go back to the room and you do it again. Then the next night you do it again. You put it on its feet for the network. And then the network comes, they give you notes, and you go back to the room and you rewrite it. And then you go shoot it on Friday night. So for a sitcom, there's a lot of stop and go, stop and go, stop and go. Dramas, usually it was like you go in and you're there from 10 to whenever. But on those shows. This show is interesting because what we do is we don't really have a room. You know, we have a room for the first two weeks. We all talk. We talk about the, you know, ideas, everything else. Then what you do is you pitch the showrunner. And then what I do on this job, which is a different way to be a number two, is I basically, I'm the setup guy. So I'll go and I'll sit with the writers in their room. I'll talk to them about their idea. The showrunner's already decided which idea. And then I'll start having them get up a rough board. So once the board's up and, and there's something there, then the showrunner comes in, says, okay, now I'll work with them for a couple of days, move on to the next room. And I just always stay, like, try to stay a step or two ahead, you know. And so it's different, very different than any other room show I've ever been on. But yet it works. And, of course, to show that's in its seventh season, it's a well-doiled machine. But I think I would do a hybrid of both because I do feel like the room five days a week just grinding all the time burns people out. But I feel like especially in a new show, you need that in the beginning because you really got to get to know the show inside and out. I mean, I've been on shows where you have to do notes on every script. Cold Case was – on every script, on every everything, you had to do notes on everybody's script. You had to do, uh, you had to watch every uh, show and give notes on, 
And um, yeah, tell Jennifer Johnson about that. <laughs> uh, and it was a lot of hard work, but I will say this, you knew that show inside and out. Everyone knew it. You were so on the same page. Like it was so hard work, but I, I never had a show where I felt more involved, you know, in every single thing. Like, you could ask me about anyone's episode. I knew it. Anything like that. Because a lot of times, and these guys will tell you too, you're so busy, you're off on your show and three episodes have been broken and written while you were gone. And unless you're the showrunner, you might not even know what's going on in those other ones and you have to come back to it. So, Did you want to add something to that? No, no. I, I think that's the best word. I mean, there's not that many shows left that are like that. And mm -hmm. I think if... If you can get on a show like that, that's how you become a showrunner. Yep. That's, that's the way you learn. Yep. Um, I just I have one quick follow-up question, because having worked with you, um, and then having talked to both Vina and Meredith on yeah. these panels, uh, it's been very interesting to see sort of the things that you brought from working with them to Supernatural. Absolutely. Can you, do you think you can point to some of those aspects? What did you learn on that show that you still Structure, 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 structure will set you free. You know? <laughs> um, and like you, you said, you're, you know, same time, it's not saying that you can't sort of focus on character and stuff like that. Everyone has a different process. But when I get in the room, it's like I need to get it up on the board. And it becomes almost like beautiful mind. You just start to go like this. You're like, hold there, hold there. I need this here. And it's like it becomes a muscle. That you've, you know, you start to use so much that it literally just snaps in. It's almost like a sixth sense or something like that. And I love that part of it. But like, I just, that's what I got from those shows. Get the structure up, know where your structure's going, then you could figure out a lot of the character stuff. And it depends on the kind of show you're doing, you know, and those, most of the TV shows I've been involved in, that's a really big, important part of it. So, for character. Yeah. Uh, Josh, <clears throat> I'm sort of interested in this idea that came up about filtering your own voice. Uh, onto through the voice of the show or vice versa. Uh, and Dana mentioned like putting those geeky references and you're the guy they go to. What is a Josh Berman episode of Bones or CSI? What do you think you brought to those shows? Uh, I like to bring the weird stuff uh, to the episodes. No, um, <laughs> to CSI, that's a, that's a certain, challenge. First, well, CSI, I mean, uh, it's, it's the quirky stuff. It's, it's, it's looking at, you know, it's, you could, how many times could you pick up a hair and say, I found some evidence at the crime scene? <laughs> so, uh, it, you, but in the beginning, it was fun, and that's all you needed to do the first or second season. But by the third season, it was trying to come up with the weirdest things I could. It was, uh, you know, a death of a werewolf. It was, you know, the plushy and furry episode. It was that kind of Seriously? Stuff. Yeah. Uh, so, and then my, you know, I, when I went to Bones, um, I was brought in to kind of bring a little bit of that juice, so to speak, to the show. And did you come into Bones on the first season? I came in halfway through the second season. Oh, okay. And uh, there, the room was a little bit kind of stale. I don't want to say I don't only. Well, Hart kind of talked about it last week, where you know they went through growing pains in that yeah, first they, year, and they were still trying to figure out where they were. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the writers had said that they saw a documentary on HBO uh, called. Born in a Barn, and it was about um, your kids are here. Um, uh, it, was a, uh, it was about. Uh, <laughs> it was Use your a, imagination. What it was about. I'll, just, I'll leave it at that. It was a uh, HBO show, and it was a fetish. So uh, I, I heard the story, and I'm like, "Great, we're doing that, guys." And the writers were like, "We don't, we don't do that on this show." And I'm like, "What do you mean you don't do that on this show?" Well, I mean, it's it's crazy, and and. So I was like, okay, well, here's the option. One of you guys can write it, or I'm going to write it. And none of the writers wanted to even bring it up to heart. And I'm like, 
Great. And, and and so Born to Barn became Death in a Saddle, and it was my first episode. And uh, and when T- TV Guide actually did a blurb on it, and they said, uh, not since CSI tackled plushies and furries has a show got our attention. So I was like, okay, great. I, I'm that guy. Um, so that that's kind of where I was with the, uh, you know, and for me, it's uh, that's not who I am as a person. So I can, I think it's the... On the record, this is record. not who no, you are I, as a I person. I do think there's, but I'm, I, as a writer, I am a total voyeur of that yeah, kind of stuff mm-hmm. like like so for me i can look at like i think if you're a little too edgy there you're looking at it and it's too close you can't write it funny mm-hmm. like but i i look at it as pure entertainment you know um so i, I that's kind of where i come in with a, a take and how does that uh translate to your own show Are, is drop dead diva sort of a, your pure vision, or do you feel like you know this is this is more of a network show? It's gone through no. I think uh, the rigors of. I that. had a great thing happen. I, I was. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'm happy to go on record. I have. I was against the writer strike. I didn't like it. I was really pissed off that uh, how things were handled, and um, and as part of that process, uh, Fox cut that script loose. Now it ended up being beneficial to me because. Lifetime bought it, and they and it was it was competing with another network at the time, and pretty much they bought it right to shoot without any notes. So I got to keep my where any other network we you guys know it would have been no matter how <laughs> you love something network have, they have to put their 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 fingerprints. What were on it. if I could just stop you for one sec? What were the notes? Uh, did you get notes from Fox? I got notes. I only got notes from the studio because it got wow. uh, it got I never delivered to Fox Network. Um, but I'll tell you my favorite note I ever got was from the 20th was, was from a 20th executive who called me and said we have a really big concern and I said what's that and they said heaven is not realistic <laughs> so um, that, that, it was a your really concept of it or the concept itself <laughs> yeah they, they just felt that the way I depicted heaven was not realistic and I said you know what do you say to that yeah. Yeah. What do you say? I said I'm going on strike <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, no. Uh, the, there was also uh, in the pitching process. It also came up from one executive saying, "The show's about a beautiful woman who comes back as an overweight woman. Can't we change it and make it an overweight woman who comes back as a beautiful woman?" Uh, I was, uh, the, I, I, that's when you just you don't know what to say. You're like, "That's not this show." Um, so yeah, but with uh, Sony as my studio, I will say if anyone you guys have were, have a chance to work there, they're incredible and they backed me a thousand percent and and all the way through the process. Um, Lifetime has gone through three different presidencies in the three years the show's been on the air, so there's always a little bit of a growing pain when there's a new sheriff in town. But um, but thankfully, I have had Sony to be consistent with. Um, <clears throat> I think that's all I have for now. I mean, I have more, but I want to give you guys a chance. Uh, are there questions from the crowd? So my question is, uh, going through and writing specs right now, are there any tips that you can give for basically keeping all the characters' voices unique to those characters? Like, just ideas uh, that you might use to sort of cheat that, to not to sort of prevent you from sort of whitewashing all the characters with your own voice or whatever. That makes sense? Yeah. <laughs> Great question. Go, Dana. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's more of a general question about, you know, how do you write characters with strong voices? To me, it, it, it's not about finding a cheat for it, especially if you're writing your own material. If, I, if, I'm, if, I'm, reading these, if I'm reading through my characters and, I, and they sound too similar, it's because I realize I don't know them well enough yet. 
and I haven't figured out what makes this person's voice that person's voice because we don't all just we don't all talk alike. We don't all sound the same. So if I'm looking at it and I realize that that's too much me, then I haven't differentiated myself from that person. So it's really just about figuring out, well, what's that guy's perspective? Like, how does he think about this? How does he approach this as, as different and differentiated from the way I would? So it's, it's less about a technique and more just about, um, Immersion. Well, yeah, I mean, we can get a little specific. Uh, Josh, let's talk about Diva for a sec. Tell us about the creation of those characters. You knew who your main character was, and it seems like she presents herself with a pretty strong voice. What about filling in that world? I mean, I always wish, I mean, Adam would be the one, the fact that he was the urban punch up guy (laughs) uh, and he's a suburban Jew, that's like, (laughs) like, I kind of want to read his material. To answer your question, I bet his scripts would do the best job of that. Um, uh, I'm writing a pilot right now that has uh, an element of the mob in it, and I've never written that before. So, um, you know, that's that's a bit of a challenge, and it, it's 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 I'm, I'm co-writing that with someone who's a little bit more in that world, and I don't want to like our a first, criminal. Yeah, pretty much. No, nice. uh, a writer from Drop Dead Diva. But the, the instinct is go. You know, people are like, oh, just go watch old Sopranos. Well, I don't want that voice. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, I, if yeah. anything, that would be the worst thing I could do mm-hmm. right now. And and the, the, I think when you force it, and, and we've all read scripts from people who are like, I'm writing my mafia script, and <laughs> if you know, you see Bada Bing in it, it just like it hurts. <laughs> so um, I think it's just it's being true to yourself first, and at the end of the day. Um, you know what Dana said. You just you go over it and over it and over it, and the voices begin to pop more and more. But with Diva, you know most of the characters are lawyers, and they're going to talk a certain way in court. And uh, you know the fact that I had a woman who wasn't a lawyer inhabiting a lawyer's body made it a lot easier. So I could write a Valley Girl model type s character sp- spouting legal stuff. So it would be unique simply from the concept of the character. Hmm. Uh, Adam, can you talk at all about the pilot that you're working on? Yeah, it's funny you were saying that. Creating Um, those characters. I'm doing a pilot right now with uh, Michael Bay's company for the CW. And it's basically, it has a very Castle Bones uh, type dynamic set in it where basically a LAP detective is working with uh, a sociology professor who's uh, sort of more scholar than professor. But they basically, every week... Um, investigate crimes that happen in subcultures. So wow. I'm basically stealing your every episode you've ever <laughs> right. done. <laughs> but I, I may need a job. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so I look. Everyone has their different, you know, things they do. I'm a big people watcher, and I remember almost everybody I ever meet. And I usually, if I meet you and you do something very interesting, or I think there's something I like, almost the minute you walk away, I will pull my phone out and be like. <laughs> I like keep every idea in here. So for me, I'm always drawing from like a different source of, of, of the, you know, millions of people I've met in my life. You know, sometimes I'll even take a character and I'll really think of somebody like who's a character that I always want to put in stuff. My friends will always be like lines of theirs that they say. I got a buddy of mine from Matt Harvey. I use Matt all the time because Matt is – the only way to describe him, he's just a corn-fed, you know, sort of like Idaho boy. And he just always has these sayings and, you know, he's like, That's, it's like chicken in the barrel, you know, and like stuff like that. But I like – so every time I need sort of like that quirky character, he's like one of my go-to, you know, things because I just think about him. And then, you know, I think part of writing too is being voyeuristic and sort of exploring the things that, you know, you might not be but you're interested in. I mean – 
when I got into the urban writing thing, it was really, I was actually an inner city kid. I grew up in the Bronx and, uh, I was what they called the cracker in the box. I was the only white kid in my neighborhood. <laughs> so I grew up around, uh, hip hop and, and, and the urban thing. And then there got a point as I evolved as a person, my writing changed and I didn't want to just be that guy anymore. You know, I had traveled, I'd seen the world, I'd evolved. I mean, at my base, I'll always be that kid, but you know, uh, the things I was interested in started changing. So thus my writing started changing, you know, nothing's better for life than living it, you know, and that will only make your writing better. And then as I'm sure Dana could attest to and anybody else. And then as you change in your life, your family, your kids, all that stuff, more characters, <laughs> you know, like just tons of characters pouring in your life and, and, and you get to draw from more things. So the guy that, you know, the things I could write now, you know, like I could st- sit in a room and nobody would see like, oh, a family comedy out of me, but I'm living a family comedy every day. So, you know, it's once again, I, I guess a long way of saying the characters come from your life and what you can grab from that and draw from that and then bring into it. And then every once in a while you get lucky and you, you discover a character that you never met or you realize he's a mishmash of all these other characters that you had. Uh, so a lot of different ways to get there. Long way to say. One of the things that you just said, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the things that you just said resonated with me a lot, which is th- this idea of, uh, of you being the, the, the cracker in the box. I, I, it's because it's the thing that makes, that's, that ultimately makes anyone's writing special is that unique perspective. Yeah. And so you being that guy is that you're not writing, you weren't the, the black punch up guy yeah. because you were, because you spoke like that or even necessarily because yeah. you, listen to that any more than anyone else who grew up in that environment. But that perspective that you bring of being sort of the outsider in that world and observing it and absorbing it in such a way that you can then speak to it while you're there is something that no one else can do. And that, you know, I, I, I'm thinking of this because I'm, I'm actually thinking of, of the show on my show, Liz, um, who, you know, brought this, uh, I, I can't give away any of the secrets because JJ will shoot me. But um, this won't go out till like February. So. Okay. Oh, okay. All right. So um, there's there's a whole flashback element to our show that takes place in Alcatraz, and there are characters in that world that you know she she has this Deadwood background, real Milch like crazy old timey, um, and the brilliant thing that she did was putting that part in the show where this voice that only she could bring to that world um, is she, she brought that element to the show and then, and then populated that with her own voice and no one else could do that. And no one else who would have, or could have written that pilot would have come up with that world and, and seeing the way that she did that. And then being there listening to her talk about those characters and articulate those voices. I was like, Oh, Oh, so I get it. If you, if you make the world the world that only you can know, then no one else can do anything to your show and no one else can make, and you're essential to it. <laughs> and, and it was just, it, it was sort of brilliant and mundane at the same time, but it's, you know, that's what makes any voice special. And, uh, and I think that brings up an interesting, arguably interesting point um, that, you know, when we start out as writers, we have not just our experiences, but we're sort of the sum of those plus our influences you know, and I think those those influences really show through in our early writing. But I'm curious about from each of you what those early influences were, whether it's you know literature or entertainment or uh, or whatever it was. Start with you, Adam. Yeah, it started with comic books. When I was four years old, I got my first comic book, and I was hooked. 
and I just read comics, comic, comic, comics all the time. Uh, my true story, I was uh, a single mom, raised me, and uh, we didn't have a lot of money. And we went, I went to PS105 in the Bronx. And uh, so one day she comes to school and I'm like, what's my mom doing here? This is weird. And I go sit with the school psychiatrist. I'm like, why am I sitting with the school psychiatrist? And they start talking to me and everything like that. And you, you've been depressed lately and you've been upset. And what, what is, are you okay, Adam? I must've been eight, nine years old. And finally I was like, oh, oh yeah, I was upset. And I, I'll share it because on the bus ride home with my mother, she sat there and didn't talk to me after I told them what it was for about, you know, 20 minutes. And finally I said, Mom, what's wrong? And she's like, Beta Ray Bill beat Thor. That's why you've been depressed. I thought someone touched you. She was like, this is like, um, but I think that was a bridge to movies and TV and everything. I think, you know, I, I think I'm a sum of my generation, you know, Gen Xers. Um, you know, I just, it was between comic books and, and then television and then movies and then literature as I got into college and books and everything like that and tried to just absorb as much. If I have one complaint, I don't really get to do that anymore. You know, I think we're so busy putting the product out. I, I don't have enough time you know, to read as much as I like to anymore, to watch as much stuff as I want and, and sort of see what's out there because that's also where you keep learning. The learning never stops, you know. It's like, and I wish I had more time to learn. Uh, Dana, what were some of those early influences for you? Uh, X-Men 145. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> They're with you. No, it, Chris no, Claremont. Chris Claremont, <laughs> Dave Cockrum. Uh, I, I came into X-Men on the, right after John Byrne and Chris Claremont finished their seminal run. <laughs> um, no, I'm, seriously, as a little kid, it was, it was all comic books and Michael Moorcock and, you know, geeky genre stuff. And then I think that there was, a, that took a hiatus in high school and I became a very, very angry radical. And then <laughs> after that, I had to figure out how to merge those two things. Um, you know, honestly, I mean, working, working for Spike, Spike, Spike being the first person who I worked for in this business was huge for me because he, he changed my life literally. Like seeing, being in high school and seeing do the right thing and being like, oh my God, I just, it coalesced so many things for me. No one who I meet after that could can impress me the way that did so like first time i met spielberg it was cool but it wasn't spike because it wasn't it hadn't it didn't change my life in that sort of fundamental way so really my influences were comic books malcolm x and spike lee discuss you know like that's that's what's happening that inside me all the time i by the way had a uh, rewrite meeting with him once and i walked in and he looked at me he went hell no <laughs> <laughs> yes he would Crazy. Uh, Josh, uh, I, I didn't read comic books a, as a kid. Um, I think as close as I got was probably the Bobsy Twins. Um, but uh, no, for me, um, I, I was influenced by David Kelly. I remember uh, in high school, whether it was L.A. Law or Ally McBeal later on in life, um, just going, wow, I love the way this guy, this writer can make me feel. And it was the first time I was aware of a TV writer having a name. It wasn't just something that you watched. And I would look forward to new David Kelly type shows. Uh, the first uh, thing I ever made and produced was a spoof of Ally McBeal called Alan McBeal. And uh, that's actually what got me my first job as a comedy, uh, which apparently... Uh, 
uh, he didn't like very much because uh, it was taking. <laughs> but I meant it as an homage. Um, who knew that my idol didn't have a sense of humor? But um, no, I still think he's an amazing writer, and I'm really inspired by him. But then also, I was lucky enough on my first drama to have Carol Mendelson as my boss. I don't know if she's mm-hmm. been here, but she she actually took the time to teach me. The first year on CSI, I went to every cut. I went to every casting session. I was there. I learned. I saw what she did and how she could take an, a cut, a director's cut that was all messed up and <laughs> 10 minutes long and missing scenes and you know, a week later come up with something that actually told a story. And I got to learn from her and that was inspirational. And then being after there for six years, I was able to be a showrunner. You think you know everything you, you need to know. And then I get to work with someone like Hart Hansen, who kind of blew my mind again. And I would see how he rewrote a script and how he approached things. And uh, I mean, he, he is, I think he's one of, if not the best, one of the best TV writers in town right now. And it's like to get to work with him for four years um, was pretty incredible. So I, I think you guys had a lot more outside influences than me, um, but mine really was once I locked into TV, just kind of stayed there. Let's talk about that running a show for the first time for a sec. Uh, what was that like for you? Uh, well, the first show I ran was called Vanished, mm-hmm. and um, it, I just I think back at that, and uh, I sold it as kind of a, it was a missing person type show and the investigation to find a senator's wife. And then the Da Vinci Code came out that summer, and suddenly it was a missing person, but with a supernatural uh, Illuminati-type angle, which I was open to, and I was fine with that. And, and I actually had that, the notion of being something bigger earlier, but they wanted, to, they wanted me to put those scenes into the pilot. A couple of days before we shot those scenes, they were going to be very expensive. I got a call from the studio saying, we talked to the network, we took out, we're taking out those scenes. Fine, I didn't carry their way. The show gets picked up, we're sitting around, and the president of the network starts talking about the show, not realizing those scenes had ever been cut. And I had to say in a meeting, those scenes were cut. From then on, I had 10 executives on every call because everyone was covering each other's butt, five from the network and five from the studio. And then after the calls were over, the executives would call me one by one and say, you know, I didn't want to keep everyone on the phone, but here are a couple more thoughts. <laughs> so, I, And I was so tired at that point that I had... You kind of you get to that point. I'm sure you guys know where you're just like, "Give me the note, I'll make it work." And then you you know that the next morning there'll be another note, and it's like, just as long as I don't hate the script, I'll keep doing it until we start shooting. Because the great thing about TV is that day will come where we have to shoot. Yeah. Um, so Vanish was, uh, and I think what I learned from Vanish is I built more of a backbone and dropped a diva, where um, or, or I learned how to navigate the water's better, where it's getting the studio on your side early on. It's knowing who the key people are at the network that don't have that debate necessarily with the junior executive, when that junior executive is going to have to go back and talk to the senior executive, but try to translate what you just said. Like you want your day in court with the decision decision makers, even if you're going to lose. So I think that's, and you know, you hear the stories about the new showrunners that are rude and that's never the way to be. Um, but there's got to be a way, and you learn trial and error how to make your point without alienating people. Yeah, yeah, and and Hart had some great things to say about that too because he's been Hart, around the Hart block gets on it. Hart pretty emotional. Yeah, which um, is it's always fun for me to watch. <laughs> Questions? Yeah. Um, it's a question for Dana, uh, I guess specifically. I'd be curious more if you could speak more about your spec that got you onto um, um, Norday Family. And also, uh, did you come in as a staff writer or did you come in a bit higher? Because you mentioned now you're a mid-level and you've just been on two shows. I was wondering about that. Came in as a staff writer. Um, the spec, and I think uh, 
part of the reason that I was able to to get just that one meeting and get on that show so quickly was it literally was as if I had written No Ordinary Family with a slightly different premise. It was uh, about a woman who uh, had been in the CIA and they had done experiments on her, and so she had superpowers, but uh, not not superpowers, but like you know she was elevated. Um, but the things that they had done to her were kill- were slowly killing her. So she married this MIT um, scientist who the reason she married him was because she needed him to find the cure. But uh, so there was this family drama. He was divorced and had a kid and she had this superhero thing going on, but this sort of secret life. Um, and it was a little bit funny, but mostly kind of serious. And so it, I didn't realize it at the time, but when I went back and looked, it was literally just like I'd written a slightly different version of that pilot. So when John read it, he was just like, yeah, you, you probably will get my show. Um, <laughs> and, and I'd be curious about the difference between that room more further and, and Alcatraz. And, and having seen the pilot, I know you can't talk about most of it, sure. but is it going to be a, a, a missing prisoner or guard of the week? Or is it going to be more serialized? Can you talk a little bit about that, at least the structure of the show? There is a serial element to it. Um, I think the, the show has a big... It's, it's got sort of a similar... JJ feel in the sense that it's got a big overarching mythological arch um, arc excuse me <laughs> um, but it's what's really fun about it and, and smart about its construction is that it has this engine which is that there are 300 something prisoners and guards from Alcatraz who are showing up in present day and each week we've got to go get one of them so there's a procedural element that you know that we can always fall back on while we're trying to tell these sort of broader, more mythological Smart. stories, which yeah, is really genius. I Let's, can we talk about uh, No Ordinary Family for just a sure. minute? Because uh, I, I watched the show, enjoyed the show. Our, our friend Autumn Reeser was on it. Um, I love you, Autumn. <laughs> uh, I'm, and I'm curious, though, it, it seemed like a sort of confused show. You know, it was trying to be a lot of things to a lot of people. Uh, and that you're nodding. Was that palpable in the room? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> How did um, you guys deal with that just on a day-to-day level? It was tough. Um, it, it was really tough. Part of, I'm sure this is something that you, got, that you can speak to with your four different network heads. Um, <laughs> our, our network, the, the head of the network, who was the person who had championed the show and who really loved it and who was like, I'm going to put you guys up against the two toughest shows on TV and I don't care what your ratings are because I'm going to stick with you. And if they're bad this year, we'll do better next year. That guy got fired sort of <laughs> six weeks into <laughs> breaking episodes. So, you know, we, we, we were serving a new master. Um, the show itself, the, the pilot on the page, I think, was slightly darker than the pilot as shot. And what we were breaking in the room after that was even lighter still. So because we were, because when we were uh, first meeting at the beginning of the season we didn't know if we were an eight o'clock show or a nine o'clock show none of that had been decided if we were nine we could have gone darker but then when we were eight it didn't that didn't necessarily fit with some of the darker elements that were in the pilot and i think all of that coalesced into something that was at times neither here nor there that said i think about eight episodes in the show found its legs and nine episodes in actually, cause I wrote eight and eight was a little bit of a mess, but <laughs> nine episodes in the show found its legs and it really became something that if the 10 million people who'd left by that point had stuck around, they would have liked yeah. nine through 20 was a much better show than one through eight. But by that point, the ship sailed. We, I mean, we're lucky to get the back nine, but 
you know, it was, and that's the great thing I think about cable is that you get a little more time to basically find your show. So I think every show has growing pains and you need to sort of figure it out. Very few shows hit the road running. I mean, some do, but, um, so yeah, I think network and, and, you know, this is a bigger conversation not to be had maybe right now, but it's our business is changing. And I think you're going to see the model, television model, become probably closer to network, probably closer to even what you see at the BBC, where shows are now, you know, I see some of these premises of shows, and I'm like, like the new one, Revenge, I'm like, all right, she gets a revenge, and then what? You know, <laughs> season one and out, you know, it's like, you're going to stretch that over five years, really? Like, all right, you know, it's, uh, so uh, I just think that uh, it's unfortunate, because I, I agree, I, I watched the show too, and at first I wasn't a fan, but it did get, was getting better and stronger, and and you wish the audience would stick around a little bit more. The network would sort of stay behind you a little more so you had time to find the show. Uh, cable seemed to do that really well. And look how many success stories they have with shows that didn't start out strong, but then, you know, end up running for many seasons and become great hit shows. So. I guess just piggybacking off of that last question, I guess this goes to Josh about Drop Dead Diva. Um, when creating the show, I'm just curious, like, who sets the tone? Like, Drop Dead Diva has a very specific tone to it, and it's super playful and very fun, and that's why I love it. And is it, is that the, like, conception of the show when you walked into it, or, like, when you started it, or is that something that Lifetime brought to it because you were able to be on a channel like Lifetime and didn't have those, like, studio and network heads, like, breathing down your back? Because it has this very unique style to it, and where does that conception come from? Um, well, first, thank you for uh, recognizing that. I will say that after the first cut of the pilot uh, came out, one of my executives uh, in a meeting in front of everyone else turned to me, and I was pretty proud of it, and, and they turned to me and said, you know, can you go back and recut it to be emotionally consistent? I'm like, what does that mean? They're like, well, we notice within the same scenes, sometimes you go happy, sad, happy, and sometimes you go sad, happy, sad. And we just think it would be really interesting for us to see what it would be like for the character not to have as many fluctuations of emotion within a scene. I did not recut it. I just looked at them like they were crazy. But I think that's when you talk about t- what they were reacting to is that it was hard. They weren't sure if it was a drama or a comedy. And in my mind, I'd always saw it as a dramedy, and that's what I wanted to do. Um, and so I, I do strive to have the, the the funny moments and ideally one moment where someone will cry somewhere in the episode um, because it's like life. And, um, you know, I worked with the, the director on the pilot um, who came from Ugly Betty. You know, we talked a lot about what the tone should be. And, you know, we didn't want it to be as surreal as Ugly Betty, you know, which uh, I love, the sh- I love the, especially the first season. And, and Silvio's a great friend, and I thought he did an amazing job, but we're not as heightened as that show. But I wanted to have the, the lightness, the brightness, the, the, the I-can-do-anything vibe in it. So it was a, a lot of conversation be- between the two of us. Sony was incredibly supportive, and, and Lifetime was too. Now we talk about, you know, going into season four, one of the big notes I get is they wanted to have more more legal veracity, more elements like the good wife in it. And what the struggle for me is to keep the same light tone, but to tell a, a pure murder case. And, uh, you know, I don't know if I'll do, be able to do it, but I, that's my, my goal right now is to, is to have more legal veracity in the storytelling, but keep the lightness in the characters. Hmm. Interesting. All right, very quickly, uh, I want to ask you guys, what are you watching on television, if anything, uh, what is the room talking about if you have a room uh, 
what are you thinking about as inspiring these days? Uh, Adam, are you watching any television? Yeah, we've been talking about Homeland a lot. We think it rocks, <laughs> you know, so that's been coming up in the room a lot when we do talk and our showrunners and stuff like that. Because I don't think any of us expected it to be that good. <laughs> we're like watching it and we're like, wow, this is really good. So that's, that's a big show for us. And um, I think we all were, oh, speaking of Vera, you know, Vera's show, The Killing, really mm-hmm. got everybody talking a lot too, sure. you know. Uh, both good and bad. Yeah. You know, people have a lot of emotions and feelings, but that's what good TV does. You know, it's like it gets people talking. And like when you, you know, we were growing up, I remember I, I, I was, I met John Ritter once. And uh, when I got all about the Andersons on the air, we had met and we nice enough to have a drink with me. And he said when they put um, their show on the air, when they, Three's Company came out, 60 million people watched it. <laughs> 60 million people, you know? But I remember when Mork and Mindy came out and going to school next day and everybody going nanu nanu and all that. But my point is like I think it's so hard now with all yeah. the different choices we have to have those water cool moments, you know, mm-hmm. outside of like a Sad Night Live or something like that. So when you find shows that everyone's buzzing about, good or bad, I think it's good. Totally. Yeah. Dana. We're I'm personally am always well behind everyone else because I, I just I catch things when they're on either mm-hmm. on TiVo or on DVD. So um, but we talked a lot about Game of Thrones. That yeah, was just yeah. such a huge game changer. I mean, you guys how know how I not? feel. <laughs> <laughs> there are fucking wizards in it and shit. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I'm a dollar. They're wizards, though. Strike <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong. You're not wrong. Yeah, Game um, of Thrones. No, I'm, I'm waiting to see Homeland. Um, Luther. Has come yeah, up a bunch, right. which is amazing. But you know, ten episodes in two seasons, like, yeah, <laughs> okay. You can't make a living off that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how you do that. But also, yeah, they're all going to be home runs because you yeah. spend a year doing four episodes. Like, <laughs> they better be. Yeah, <laughs> um, Josh. Um, I'm not as uh, fancy as you guys. Uh, I'm, I'm going to confess um, my guilty pleasure right now. But I think more is just a writer because I love the fact of that they're getting away with it and it's Harry's so visual as Once Upon a Time, <laughs> which is just, it's... I thought you were going to say Harry's Law because I know <laughs> <laughs> uh, No, I just think Once Upon a Time is different. I love the mm-hmm. fact that, that, that it's on the air. I can't imagine how they're going to keep it going for more than a season, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I'm just enjoying the ride now and as a writer, I'm intellectually curious to see sure. how they're going to take that story and, and and, and spread it out over 22 episodes for even one season. But I, I love watching it, and I love seeing what those writers are doing. Cool. See, on genre shows, all you do is trash other genre shows. <laughs> it's like once upon a time, really. I mean, it, it, yet, you know, it's like we love Games of Thrones, so when it's done really well. But I think you're, you, there, we talk about those shows, especially the genre ones, a lot because we're a genre show. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah. Uh, yes, we need to wrap up. Uh, so please, a round of applause for Josh Berman, Lee Dana Jackson, and Adam Glass. Thanks to 826LA and everyone here at Nerdist Industries at Meltdown Comics. Goodbye. Now leaving Nerdist.com.